Hi, and welcome to this episode of Battling with Business with me, Chris Kitchener. And me, Gareth. Come on. In this podcast, we explore the ideas and concepts around teams and teamwork, leaders and leadership, and all things in between. It's a discussion between a former Royal Marines officer and a product manager from the world of business, comparing and contrasting our experiences as we attempt to work out what makes teams, leaders, and businesses tick. And Gareth, this week's episode is the second in one of our sort of ad hoc series. The influencers. The influencers, that is catchy. We do need to get some merch, some t-shirts or something. I was wondering whether we need to create a separate icon on the podcast, because you can change that. Ah, Well, you know, keep an eye out, listeners, and maybe you'll see things that have changed. If I get time, I will do it. If we get time. That's always, we've realised this, that making podcasts is a huge amount of fun. But actually, every week having to get content ready, it turns out that's quite a lot. But anyway, enough of that. This week on Influencers, um, we started in the first of our Influencers episodes, which hopefully you've all listened to, talking about the world of business and Steve Jobs. And today we're taking a slightly different turn, perhaps going a little bit back in history and maybe starting to look at the first of our military influencers. And while you might expect that we would pick someone perhaps a little bit more famous, Montgomery or a Patton, or if you're of a German uh, side of things, perhaps Rommel, we're not going to. So, uh, Gareth, who is it we're going to be talking about today in Influences? So we're going to talk about, um, and there's some discussion about the formal title that we can probably have in a minute, but I think Group Captain Baron Leonard Cheshire, VC, OM, DSO and Two Bars, DFC. I'm hoping that there'll be a number of people listening to this who say, oh, I know about Leonard Cheshire, but I have a sneaking suspicion there's actually going to be quite a number of people who have either never heard of Leonard Cheshire, or if you've heard about him, know perhaps remarkably little. And and one of the reasons why we picked him was because we both knew a little bit about him. And recently, uh, we've just passed the dam, the sort of anniversary of the dams raid. And so 617 Squadron, which you'll hear about later, why it becomes important. Um, and, and Leonard Cheshire was, uh, uh, spoiler alert, I'll sort of tell a bit of the story, but is is involved with 617 Squadron. So he is known, and actually you've probably heard of him in a different context, but we thought he was really, really interesting, partly because he was less well-known. Yeah, so... I had heard of Leonard Cheshire, and being being a military officer, you you may have thought I would know who he was and a little bit more more about him. But beyond knowing he was a very well respected bomber commander in the Second World War, I didn't know anything about him. And I'd heard of Cheshire Homes, and I didn't realise they were connected in any way. And so I stumbled across the story of Leonard Cheshire a few months ago and was firstly blown away by the things that he achieved over his life. I think we're sort of alluding to the fact that there's far more to him than just being a bomber commander. I was struck by the approach he took during the war to command and leadership of both bomber crews, squadrons, and units and the approach that he took to achieving things using the capabilities that he had, including the people under his command. Well, let's let's get straight into it, because I think for us to say this is an influencer, particularly one that perhaps people know less about, maybe we should tell a bit of his story. So, Gareth, do you want to sort of 
tell us a bit about Leonard Cheshire and and sort of a bit of his life. Yeah, we talked about heroes in a couple of episodes, and we talked specifically about the definition of heroes from a software and from a military perspective. And I talked about the slight awkwardness around applying that label to military people, often because they've been lucky or because they have just been in a difficult place at a difficult time doing their job. But I think Leonard Cheshire absolutely deserves the title of of hero, mostly because there is a continuity throughout the whole of his life, which is all about service to others. So Leonard Cheshire, born in 1917, from a relatively middle-class family doing reasonably well around here actually where where he grew up in uh, sort of over towards Abingdon wife from a military family his own father I believe served uh, as a balloon artillery observer in the first world war very briefly um, but was an academic and he grew up in a relatively sort of upper middle class upbringing and was sent to Stowe School where he didn't excel particularly as an academic, um, but did leave his mark. Uh, and there are lots of sort of memoirs from teachers and, and friends at Stowe that comment on him being somebody who really developed relationships quite quickly. I was going to say, it's interesting because most of our archetypes of heroes were the rugby captain, yeah. throwing, a, you know, whatever the first team for rowing yeah was. absolutely and, and 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 he wasn't that no he was a sportsman he played tennis very well but yeah wasn't a athlete by any stretch wasn't a, an academic um, but certainly left his mark as being compassionate and slightly rebellious uh, and that came out more when he then went on to oxford before he went to oxford he briefly went to germany to, I can't remember exactly what the relationship was. It might have just been a friend of his father's, uh, but he went and spent some months in Germany during the late 1930s uh, or middle to late 1930s. And apparently, um, and I'm not sure quite whether this is hypocritical or, or true, but apparently he went to a, uh, a Nazi rally uh, and was rebuked for refusing to salute with a Nazi salute at the end but didn't really show any any interest in politics and so apart from not being interested in fascism and nazism kind of that was that uh, got on very well with the germans while he was there um, and that was that and then came back and went to oxford to study law and follow in the footsteps of his father who was uh, an academic in law at oxford got into trouble with the police well there's a there's a fabulous story and i think i think it's when he's at oxford which is he was down the local pub and he got into a discussion with a local and somehow got into a bet that with less than 10 pounds in his pockets, he could get to Paris and buy a pint of beer. Yes. Yeah. And and apparently these were the kind of things he did quite a lot. What I found quite interesting was he was caught speeding in a motorcar and that made the local paper because obviously that wasn't such a big thing back then and he did have a sort of fairly I would say adventurous rather than rebellious side but what was what I thought was really intriguing about this was the memoirs uh, and recollections of his academics at Oxford remember his rebelliousness 
um, and his most heinous crimes being the fact that he talked to the staff <laughs> and made friends with the staff, like the groundskeepers and the cooks and the waiters and the local publican. And, and I think, again, you get an insight of a very compassionate man who cares about the people around him, irrespective of what they can do for him, well, irrespective he, of rank or privilege. I mean, we haven't got on to sort of some of the bigger things he did, but I think it's really interesting that when you, we see our leaders as larger than life, gregarious, up until midnight, you know, leading the rugby team. You can already see in his life, he's got a very different set of values. And as we'll talk about, has been as successful, if not more successful than many other people. So yeah. one, one thing to take away is to be a great leader, you don't have to fit an archetype. No, I'm, not, I'm deliberately sort of picking out the, the smaller details early on because I think they do build a sort of understanding of his character because he, he joined the officer training corps for the army initially. Uh, I think he was going to go into the cavalry and he decided that it was far too disciplined and took far too much work. And so transferred very quickly into the air corps and this was when he was still at university, yeah. wasn't it? So, so he the university air training squadron, yeah. uh, because it was an opportunity to sit down, uh, as he described it. I can I can really respect so, a man who chooses yeah. his career path based on availability of seats. At this time in his life, he talks about you know what what are his future aspirations. His aspirations are to drive a Bentley. I think he, that was his thing. He, he, he bought an expensive fast car that he yes. probably couldn't have afforded. I think they um, about. he modelled himself on Fred Astaire, and and he was driven by notoriety rather than fame. I would say, um, but you know, being successful without really having any definition of what that was. So he was definitely somebody that was perhaps a little bit vain. Um, in his youth and yeah driven by the idea of success or notoriety but not really having a, a clear goal as to how he's going to achieve I, I think there's also following his own path yeah none of these things are the traditional for me to be successful I'm going to do xyz you know choosing the RAF or the, the air training corps because of it you could do more sitting down choosing off the cuff to have a bet I, I really like this idea of he wasn't following other people's archetypes. He was sort of following his own. Yeah. Um, so, well, I think we should probably sort of canter through everything he achieved and, and who he was, and then we can get back to why and, and, and that sort of thing. Our listeners probably know that he, he did join the RAF. He was very successful. He ended up in Bomber Command and went through training and then through the ranks uh, and was very, very quickly promoted to the rank of acting, acting group captain at the age of 25. Isn't that insane? Now, part of that is clearly the massive expansion of the Air Force and demand for uh, aircrew during the Second World War. But part of it is also the clear talent that he had. And we can talk about what that talent was. He is the youngest, even to this day, ever group captain in the Royal Air Force. Well, and, and maybe we'll come back to this. Interestingly, talent wasn't that he was the best pilot. No. He actually said on multiple occasions, I am a terrible pilot. Yep. But he then spent hours and hours and hours becoming competent 
yeah. and a good pilot. And he flying reports all talk about him uh, being competent and adequate and at times average to above average, but never leading the yeah. pack. Um, and like I say, he even talks about it himself. And it's one of, again, one of the character aspects was he realised that he wasn't naturally talented. So he had pilot, to work at being good enough. But he worked damned hard. And and, and I think he he also, and this we're leading, you know, we'll, we'll dip in and out of what makes him a good leader. He worked hard to be the person that the people could follow. And so there's yeah. stories of him moving to a squadron on an aircraft he was unfamiliar with, and the fitters would find him at 11 o'clock at night with a torch sitting in the cockpit and turning the torch out and learning the cockpit in the dark yeah. to make him competent at what he did. So there was a, there's a real sense that he wasn't a dilettante who sort of was amazing at everything he did. There was, no, a, I, there was a good deal of hard work. I think this is part of the almost paradox of Leonard Cheshire is that you can you can read some aspects and some of the anecdotes and think this was a, a flashy dilettante kind of character. And then you very quickly realise that simultaneously to that, there is a guy who realises the responsibility that he holds and works damned hard to make sure that he achieves and goes beyond the expectation, not only in terms of you know, technical flying and engineering and learning the aircraft and the tools, but also in learning the people and the team and learning about them building relationships with them and working very, very hard to ensure that collectively the capability is the best it can be. Again, you can look at Leonard Cheshire through the eyes of history and, and retrospectively and, and see a great achiever, but at the time, and again, looking at some of the, the narrative around him at the time, there's nothing that indicates that he was driven by the success. It was always driven by the greater purpose in whatever it was. Yeah, and I think he talks about how he was scared all the time. Yeah, and, and that he 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 managed that fear. But let's let's move on. So he's the youngest acting group captain. Yeah. Now, and you might say, oh well, you know, you'd never having already about that. done a whole load of bombing. Let, let's. Right? So what what's his next bombing, big right? what's his next big job that we, maybe will be more familiar to people? So. You can't fly at that point, so he's gone, he's promoted beyond operational flying, he's very frustrated, uh, and I'd like to come back to command leadership and management, because at this point, he's a manager, he's a station commander, so there is a responsibility for command, there is an aspect of leadership, but largely he is the capability manager of about two and a half thousand people and various air squadrons doing their various different operations and missions and was frustrated and arguably not very good at it either. And then through, I think, his own efforts, but also the efforts of others around him who identified... I think they knew him, He yeah, was misappropriated in that role. Uh, he was stripped of his acting rank. In fact, I think he requested... He absolutely... Well, he requested it and it was denied several times. <laughs> um, but when, when it was offered to him, he jumped at it. Um, and so he was stripped of acting rank in order to become the commander of 617 Squadron, the Dambusters. So this is just after the famous Dams raid. Absolutely. Guy Gibson, another 21-year-old? 
could be maybe a little yeah. bit older. Maybe, I might be wrong. Might be twenty three, but they've just done the dams raid. Phenomenally young these commanders. Unbelievable, and and there's an in, there's an entire episode perhaps to talk about the dams raid yeah. because I think it's an excellent. We all remember the film, but then you think, how did they organise it and how do they? But yeah, separately, I, and I think there's something to be explored uh, there about the reason that most of our listeners probably know the name Guy, Guy Gibson, Gibson more than Leonard yeah, Cheshire. Absolutely. When arguably, I think by the end of this podcast at least, they will hopefully recognise that Leonard Cheshire probably achieved a lot more over yeah. the course of... So he's he's now made the commanding officer of 617 Squadron. Yeah, so this is a squadron that specialises in uh, high-precision bombing. So most heavy squadrons are doing area bombing of German industrial factories, cities... Um, 617 Squadron are focused on very specific targets and as such require techniques and tactics that are probably outside of the norm. None of this was normal, of course, because heavy bombing is something that we we are learning as we go. And you know, Arthur Harris is developing all kinds of ways of doing it. But even more interestingly, 617 Squadron are, are a niche within a niche developing a very different way of doing precise so let's let's talk about the the work they do so in 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 simple terms area bombing you would fly to a particular set of coordinates you would uh, a whole bomber stream would drop their bombs and there was a uh, a probability that you would hit within a five mile radius ten mile radius it was it was very very inexact yeah and so where we were bombing at night and the u.s were doing daylight bombing so an even more difficult problem but of course weather plays a huge issue and, and factor in, in whether you can be precise in your bombings there was another quite famous squadron of pathfinders that would fly and drop markers and typically they would fly lower than the Heavy bombers that would fly at about twenty thousand, maybe. And they were the, they were the best navigators. And they were they were the some of the best crew. air crew. They'd fly lower, and the whole point was precision. But they would fly lower at maybe fifteen thousand feet, and then drop down to five thousand for when they get to their target. And then Leonard Cheshire came along. Yeah, and six said, seven squadron are doing things like so. Previously, they've done uh, of chastise, and they've done the the famous dams raid before Leonard got there. They're bombing very specific targets, like specific buildings or structures, dams, for example. And so they're having to come in at much, much lower altitudes. Well, um, there's, I, I don't know whether you, I mean, we've both read, by the way, interestingly, sort of slightly different books. So, so the, the, the statement is they think to have the maximum uh, accuracy, they have to fly considerably lower as in sort of down to a thousand feet low. This is very, very low. Yeah. Now flying over occupied Germany at a thousand feet, you're typically gonna get shot down. The yeah. higher you go, the safer you are. So Leonard Cheshire says, I believe if we fly sort of on this downward trajectory, we almost dive bomb the target, we'll be very accurate. And he realized there were these new aircraft called mosquitoes. And he said, I need some mosquitoes because I think I can revolutionize the way that we bomb. And the powers that be said, yeah, A, we don't have any spare mosquitoes and B, we don't believe you. So at that point, Leonard Cheshire said, well, I'm going to do what I've done with a mosquito, a much faster, lighter, more powerful aircraft. I'm going to do that in the Lancaster, which 
I can only imagine at the time must have sounded absolutely insane. Yeah, yeah. I, so I think getting back to the character of the man, there's before he went on to Lancaster's, there's a time where he's in a Halifax squadron and the Halifax really struggles to fly on three engines. So if an engine cuts out from mechanical failure or flak or, or damage, then they were losing a lot of aircraft. And I think it's, it's a measure of the man that one of the things he was particularly interested in was not just improving the, the accuracy and the delivery of effect, but also in the morale of the organisation trying to do that and, and balancing those things. So he worked really, really hard with the Halifax to work out how to get it better. So one of the things that the Halifax couldn't do was fly as high as the Lancaster. So he worked really hard with the engineers to strip out bits of kit that they don't need, make it lighter, make it fly higher. And then they have this problem where it, it won't fly very well on three engines. And this particular maneuver that other aircraft do that this can't do because it falls out of the sky. So the RAF get a test pilot crew to come and work out why. Incredibly brave job basically pushing an aircraft to the limits of failure to work out why it failed. And on the morning they're going to do these trials, Leonard Cheshire turned up and came with them. And they were all absolutely gobsmacked because A, this is a very, very high risk mission, and B, he was the squadron commander. Of, or, yeah, he was the squadron commander at the time. And the test pilot was, was obviously incredibly surprised by this but also a bit nervous that the squadron commander who's instructed this test is basically going to come and sort of lean over his shoulder and take over. Apparently throughout the whole flight, he didn't say a word. He just observed the whole thing. He took notes and it wasn't until they were on the ground that he had discussion with the aircrew about what they had done, why they made decisions, where they thought the fault was. And I think that to me was a really good example of somebody who really wanted to get into the technical detail, not because he was a technical detail person, but because he understood the relationship between what they were trying to do with the equipment they had and the relationship that his people under his command had with that equipment. And I think it was exactly the same with when he was 617 Squadron with the, he did those te all those tests he led he yeah. flew and so he did this in a lancaster this this sort of new as it were dive bombing technique was successful was given mosquitoes yeah. so 617 started flying mosquitoes and he continued to do these missions and he finished and this is for those of you who sort of are familiar with the second world war which i don't know if you did know but 617 squadron also flew p-51 mustangs and, and, and because he, of Leonard Cheshire. Because of Leonard Cheshire, because yeah. people said, well, if he needs a P-51, we'll get him a P-51. So I think that, yeah, there was a particular raid. This is quite late on in the war. So there's so much to talk about in terms of things he did. So one of the drivers for the tactic of uh, the precision, high precision bombing, was the V-3 weapon. So you've got the V1 Doodlebug, the V2, the rocket. The V3 actually was, was a rail gun. There were two of them constructed in the part of Calais. And if they had been completed, they would have been able to fire, I can't remember the calibre, but it's a 
ridiculously large caliber shell, something like 13 inch or something. So a massive shell, one per minute from Calais into London. So if they completed this project, it was one of you know Hitler's super weapons, there would have been loud explosions going off in London once a minute, 24 hours a day for the rest of, well, until Germany fell. And so it was a really big priority. And Barnes Wallace, the famous scientist, who I think we should possibly cover in another episode of, of this, this sort, because again, a very misunderstood narrative around a... Not, not the same as you might have seen. In the yeah, absolutely. Uh, but an incredible technocrat, an incredible engineer, a credible politician with a small p in terms of getting things done in and amongst the bureaucracy of the war cabinet. Anyway, Barnes Wallace, the inventor and creator of the bouncing bomb that they'd used against the dams, was instructed to build the the bomb that could destroy the, the V3 facility. And it was called the Tall Boy. And it was effectively a bomb that delivers a small earthquake. So it was well, fact, a 12,000 pound bomb. It, it was an earthquake bomb. And the fact that it, I think it, in, it buried into the ground. It buries into the ground and detonates and creates a localized earthquake that will destroy structures. And that was, that's what it did. And it, you know, incredible. But I mean, just to put that in perspective, a typical air munition is about 250 pounds, and then you get 500 pound bombs. So this is 12,000 pound bomb. Uh, Lancaster could carry one. And Barnes Wallace said, you've got to hit with, I think it was within 30 meters of the facility. And at the time, they were struggling to get within 150 meters. I'm getting potentially my feet and meters mixed up because obviously a lot of this is recorded in imperial measurements um, of the target markers, the flares that were being left on the top near the target and the flares themselves were normally somewhere within 150 meters. So sometimes 300 meters from the target was considered an incredibly accurate hit. Um, and Barnes Wallace said, if you can't get it within 30 meters, there's no point me building this bomb. And so there was a, a really detailed conversation that went all the way up to Bomber Harris, so Arthur Harris, commander of Bomber Command, to talk about the balance between risk, accuracy of bombing, and the amount of aircraft they would be able to use. And that's where he requested the mosquitoes, and he was eventually given them, having proven this diving technique on, on various other raids. By the time it came to delivering this precision effect post D-Day, so post 6th of June 1944, the mosquitoes had been requisitioned to go and do other things. There was a lot going on. And so he needed an aircraft that could fly fast, was agile enough um, to do this, and he wasn't going to get the mosquitoes from the RAF. So apparently he'd impressed some people in the US Air Force and so called in some favours. And they gave him one. A Mustang turned up on the day of the raid that it was first used in a box, in a crate. The last time that Leonard Cheshire had flown a single-seater aircraft had been in training before he converted onto multi-engine aircraft. And he flew the Mustang. And so when you talk about you know, being found at 11 o'clock with a torch trying to work it out, he was still 
working out how to fly the aircraft, navigate the aircraft, do the tactics that he needed to do when the Lancasters had already taken off for the raid. And he ended up effectively with the instruction manual with navigators because he was humble enough to realize he hadn't really done navigation properly since his training days because he'd had a crew and the engineers working till the last safe moment where he was like, right, I've got this. And then without any test flights, he took off, he caught up with the Lancasters as they were on the target, went past them, dropped down, delivered the target markers, and it was another successful raid. So we've, we've, <coughs> I have to take a breath when you think that, because as a pilot, I know that's quite terrifying. So in the end, he did 100 raids over enemy territory. Yep. So he, which by the way, was a typical tour was 24, I think. And you would do a certain number of tours before you would you would be offered a chance to step down. Yeah. Like 20, I think. 20, it 20, well, I think it, I think it changed yeah. over the war. But anyway, either way, 100 was an enormous number of raids. Yeah. And it got to, it was coming now towards the end of the war. And so here's another fact about Leonard Cheshire that most people I've spoken to just aren't aware of. So if we now move to the Pacific theater and the Americans are now heading towards Japan, as uh, firebombing of Japan using this new brand new super aircraft called the B-29. And um, they are preparing to drop the first nuclear weapon. And on board, I think Nagasaki is the second. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. I think it was the second flight. Uh, the United States had allowed one British observer and that observer was Leonard Cheshire. So Leonard Cheshire flew and participated in that uh, personally that requested attack. by Churchill and on completion of the observation then debriefed the then Prime Minister Clement Attlee and that I think gives you a sort of measure of how his reputation had gone from you know one of many heroes of bomber command to he is the man for me when he debriefed Clement Attlee he didn't talk so much about the flying and the tactics. He talked about strategy. And very interestingly, he wasn't interested in dropping nuclear bombs from aircraft. He'd already, in his sort of preparing of the briefing to Clement Hartley, he went through all the technical details of how the raid was conducted, the aircraft specifications, the bomb itself, how it worked, all of that kind of stuff and then talked about the fact that Britain needed to be at the forefront of the space race because nuclear weapons were going to be a strategic deterrent in future wars, and therefore they would themselves need to be protected. And as far as he could see, the best way to do that was to, was to have space-delivered nuclear weapons. Um, and so the space race, rocketry, missile technology, and this is coming from a man who has just forged his whole reputation on strategic bombing. So I, I think it just gives you again a, another dimension of Leonard Cheshire as not just a tactician, not just a leader, but a strategist. So we, we by the way, just one last thing, which I think is interesting, because in, in this, we're quite keen to, to sort of pick out not to lionize these leaders or put them on a pedestal because I think they all like all of us have our, that sort of foibles 
it, it said, and I think he reports in his own book in the biography of him, which is approved. He said, we really hoped the war wouldn't be over before we could drop the bomb. Yeah. That they wanted to, that yeah. this was something they wanted to try. Now, again, we can look at that and have different views on whether people being excited about dropping a nuclear weapon is a good thing. But it was interesting he said that. So this is a perfect time to take a break. You would imagine that now we've talked about his wartime career, we'd spend all our time talking about his wartime career. Let's take a quick break and come back and talk about his equally interesting peacetime career because again this is where people hear less and less about him but should know more and more so before before we do i just want to give a sense of what he achieved over you know those, those few short years he went from novice a little bit of flying at university to youngest wing commander at the age of 25 just to put that into perspective i was the uh youngest captain in the royal marines and I deployed to Afghanistan at the age of 22. And I felt out of my depth as a troop commander leading 30 men, 30 Marines on operations. Yeah, that it's incomprehensible to me that at the age of 25, so three years older than I was when I first went to Afghanistan, at the very lowest level of command for, for, for an officer, he was already group captain managing an entire an entire base but my, my son is 16 so that's in seven years time it's in, it's in when time. most people are thinking about leaving university he was flying a hundred bomber missions over berlin absolutely insane he developed the tactics for precision bombing well beyond what the RAF was already doing and we'll talk about that in, in some more detail I, I think because that comes down to a balance of technical skill tactics and leadership he destroyed the main tank force that would have been part of the either the 9th or the 21st panzer division i'm not sure which one just prior to d-day he also led the mission to deliver the tactical deception for d-day itself so 617 squadron dropped uh, what they call window which is the um, small of strips, of, strips aluminium of aluminium to fool the radar, radar in, uh, in the Pas de Calais on the night of the 5th or 6th of June in order to give the final nudge to the Germans that this is where the invasion is happening, where it's coming from. At the time, he was particularly frustrated that he wasn't playing a more active part in the invasion. With hindsight, he said that is probably the raid of the 100 missions he carried out that saved the most lives and, and just incredible he destroyed the u-boat pen at la havre uh destroying all but one of the u-boats there was left rendered uh, unusable they used the tall boy earthquake bombs there and it was so destructive that 10 other vessels in the harbor were blown out of the water and were found on the dockside that is just a few of the operations that he conducted. Well, and of course, we we, over we, we sort of skimmed over it, but he took over 617 Squadron from Guy Gibson, who many people felt was this amazing leader and who yeah. took them. So that in itself, imagine if you are taking over from a highly successful leader in a prominent organisation. So, yeah, yeah, I, I, absolutely. I think after the break, we do absolutely need to go on to the second half of his life. Um, but it's also worth looking at the state of the squadron when he took it over, 
what he had to do. And, and we'll talk less about the exploits, less about the raids, and more about the measure of the yeah, man who got so. them to that point. All right. Well, we'll see you in a few seconds. Come back in a bit and we'll talk more about the life and sort of the, the role of Leonard Cheshire. Wonderful. Welcome back. Well, just before the break, we'd been talking about Leonard Cheshire's wartime career. And I, I wonder if I'm going to get in trouble now. In an odd way, I think his peacetime career was just as interesting, if not maybe more surprising. Actually, I can say it's more surprising, if nothing else. Yeah, I, I think if you're a military geek, then of course, you know, talking about Halifaxes, Whitley's and Lancaster's is, is clearly interesting. But from a objective what he achieved, the story around how he got there, I think equally, if not more fascinating. So let's talk about that. So he's, he leaves the RAF and he leaves the RAF with a very strong philosophy. And the philosophy is now about peace. He later in life becomes uh, a Catholic and, and quite a, uh, um, a dedicated Catholic. We'll talk about some of those stories, yep. but he, he didn't stay around in the RAF and say, well, I'm going to continue because I'm a bomber pilot and that's what I do. He leaves and he is now, um, I think you would call him idealistic. He's now trying to imagine what a peaceful life. And, you know, you, you talked about this before he, he is dedicated to his team and his people and so he decides he wants to create a new world where ex-military people can come together and create a useful life together. So there's another I, dimension, of course. So during the war, he was sent to Canada to go and pick up some bombers and fly them back. And, and for whatever reason, had a couple of weeks where they were, I think they were trying to sort out some paperwork. To allow them to, to fly back um, and he went to New York and, and? and he met a, uh, a fair a relatively famous uh, US stage actress uh, called Constance Binney who I, I have to be honest, never, heard, never of. heard of but this is sort of 1930s and probably 1920s stage actress um, but a celebrity nonetheless in New York 20 years his senior married her while he's out there so isn't he, that interesting that, that yeah. someone I mean maybe that was of the time but that's fascinating that someone like this would just meet someone and then marry them marry them yeah and it, it was definitely it was a sort of shotgun wedding you know you had to get random people nearby to be the witnesses but for now he's left the left the area end of the war he didn't he didn't go into university with the idea of joining the RAF he joined the RAF as a consequence of liking the university air squadron and a war breaking out but it has defined him over the previous five years so he is now a well-known celebrity hero he is that's it's really important to say that he was very very well known at this point yeah and and initially after the war and i this is an area where i'm not an expert in at all but for the first few years people idolized the heroes of the war so the names of 
people that had achieved great things. You know, and he got a VC. I was got, about to say, we know, didn't even mention the VC. How, how ridiculous is that, that if, when we talk about someone's achievements, the Victoria well, Cross, I, of which there are very, very few given, he was awarded. And how did he react to being rewar- awarded the VC? So he was awarded it at the same time as a non-commissioned aircrew. Both awarded it, interestingly, not for a single act of valour. So normally the Victoria Cross is bestowed on those people that in the face of the enemy, and that's where it differs from the George Cross, of course, have under overwhelming danger um, gone on to do something particularly brave, particularly audacious, um, normally that has resulted in saving the lives of, of one or many others. Um, he didn't get it for a single act of bravery. He was awarded the Victoria Cross for a continual track record for tours, a hundred sorties of continual bravery, valor, dedication. At the same time, he went to receive the award uh, from King George, a, a non-commissioned air crew uh, who was also receiving a Victoria Cross for a very similar reason uh, was there with him and decorum dictates the senior ranking officer would be awarded first the Victoria Cross. He insisted they both approach the king together rather than with the senior NCO sort of following behind him and then when they got to the king he said this chap deserves it more than I do give him his first. He was he was repeatedly asked about this sort of approach and he was very deprecating and said that the mm. VC wasn't for him. It was for all the bomber crews and all the squadrons. Yeah, and, and he was awarded lots of awards later on through his life. And we'll talk about that. And, and every time he, he says the same thing, which is, you know, this award is going to me. But, but there is a whole organisation of people who are doing things that deserve this. And you, you quite often see sort of false modesty and, and I so think he, because he does tell. this again and again and again this is a man who, who genuinely is not interested in um and, it, and this again is the juxtaposition against him as a you know 20 year old university student he's not interested in the limelight he's not interested in the notoriety or the fame i, I suspect i mean it, one thing you should all do is Often when you talk about people in the past, it's very hard to connect with them. And, mm. and as we were reading, as I read the book and you read a different book about him, you, you, you come to your own conclusions. We're very lucky that you can go onto YouTube and you can see a number of interviews with Leonard yeah. Cheshire. And so, you, you know, this idea where we say, well, he wasn't a man who stood up and said, look at me. Just go watch the interviews and you'll start to learn. You get the measure of the man, definitely. But I want I want to can I want to canter along in his civilian life because yep. I think it's fascinating. So he leaves the Air Force and he says, I believe in a future where ex-service people can come together and live a life together where they can be useful. And by hook or crook, and this is something you're going to hear time and time again in his career, by hook or by crook, he gets two country houses. He is given two country houses. Well, he bought. He bought the first. He bought one and was, can't. I think, was yeah. given the second one. And so he he fills it with RAF uh, ex-military people, and he is going to build this new peaceful life as a community. I believe he has to go back to America to divorce his wife, and while that happens, the experiment fails disastrously. 
yeah. it goes bankrupt and everyone leaves. So again, let's be clear, while there is a huge amount of success in Leonard Cheshire's life, there's a really interesting example of a failure. Yeah. And so what does Leonard Cheshire do? He goes back to his house, which is now the, the one he owns, the large yeah. country house, and he's quietly living in his house. Well, actually, there's more to it because he um, he comes out of the war, as I said, he is a well-known figure in society. You know, everybody has heard of Leonard Cheshire and his heroic exploits. He's married to this glamorous, albeit slightly aging now, US celebrity. He's quite wealthy. He's got this big house. Um, and during this time, his marriage collapses and the, the national mood changes. And it changes from one of lionising the, the grapes from the war to we don't talk about the war. And that's where everybody closed down and, and you know, the, the sort of well-known trope of, you know, granddad doesn't talk about his time in the war. That all sort of happened a few years after. And so he went from being quite a well-known figure to somebody that... Not well-known. People knew the name, but weren't that interested. And and with it fell away the money, the uh, the favours, the connections. And he ended up. He also suffered quite badly with TB. And yes, and late, late two years. That's a little bit later okay. in his life, but um, and that that has quite a detrimental effect. So he goes from sort of a high to a pretty low point. Um, and yeah, the... and he, he goes to a hospital one day and I, I don't know whether it was an, uh, someone who, I think it might have been someone who served in his squadron. It, no, it was a First World War veteran was the first. If, was that the first one? Yeah. Family. And so he's, he's in the hospital. And if I remember rightly, you can tell we're sort of, we're not experts on London Cheshire. So anyone who is, we apologise. Um, he, this chap is going to die. I think he had cancer. Got cancer, yeah. And the hospital said, uh, we've there's nothing more we can do for him. And I mean, he's, bed. he's he's not he's not sort of ill to the point where we have to help yeah. him medically, but he's going to die and there's nothing we can do and we need the bed. Yeah. And so Cheshire turns to the chap and says, "Do you want to come home with me?" There's no previous experience of this. Yeah. And the man said, "Yes, I would actually." And so at that point, Cheshire says, "I have no idea how to look after a person," and so. He'd obviously built a relationship with the hospital. And so the nurses um, start to explain what they need to do to support this person. So he takes him back to his house yeah. and single-handedly, he starts to care for him. And when, when I first heard about Leonard Cheshire and all of these exploits, I sort of assumed this was a sort of slightly aristocratic old man in a big house. He's like, oh, well, I've got spare spare room and my staff will yes this is the point this there was no staff he hasn't got any money at this point he is literally going into quite serious debt and he he's, and he dedicates himself personally to caring he, for this he guy sleeps at the foot man. of the bed yeah he sleeps at the foot of the bed to be near to him and he he gets to a point where he builds a, a bell well he, i think he builds a, a sort of a ringer thing so that he can be in his bedroom and the man can call him mm. and the man says I don't like using that. I like using my little tinkle bell and he moves to him. So yeah. he's got this guy living in his house that he is now dedicated to looking after. And you say, well, you know, that's that's nice. Yeah. And then the doorbell rings or the knocker goes, I suspect, one of the two. And all of a sudden there is a man who says, uh, you're Leonard Cheshire, aren't you? Yes. You looked after the name of the chap. Yeah. Yes. 
my wife's old and I can't look after her anymore. Would you look after my wife? And so now Leonard Cheshire has two people in his house. And there's a fantastic story where Leonard Cheshire said, I've never had to look after a woman before. What do I have to do? And again, they're starting to tell him. Mm. And there's a story about a bed bath. <laughs> and that they explain that this woman needs to be given a bed bath every day because she's bed bound. And apparently there is every day for 10 days, he says, I need to bath you, bathe you. And she says, no. And she says, no. And she says, no. And apparently on the 11th day, she buckles. He gives her a bed bath. They nod to one another. It will never be spoken of again. And from then on, he gave her a bed bath. So this is remarkable. Yeah. Let's go back. This is Leonard Cheshire VC, group captain. And now, he is, now he is looking on his own with no money after two people. And as yeah. you can, you're starting to get how this is going to work. It escalates. Yeah. Not long later, he's got 20 people in his house. And he is now looking after people that no one else will look after or can look after. And all of a sudden, that's the beginning of Cheshire Homes. I'm just looking at my notes here and I've written, he accidentally started a care home. Isn't and it amazing? It, it is absolutely accidental. He, he and he, there's an interview of, with him in the late 70s, I think, where Cheshire Homes is now a big going concern. He's starting, we'll talk about this in a minute, starting to you know build care homes in other countries and do a lot of other charity work and, and, and is again now in the public eye um and somebody says you know how did you how did you come up with the plan for this he's like, i didn't plan for this yes he, this is well this gets repeated so never he, had a plan he, he's now he's now not well because he's now tired he's exhausted mm. because yes. he's doing all this work and what he realizes is now there are people around supporting him and he sort of attracts people so when there's 20 people it's not just him yeah. there are people now coming and so what he does Again, a really interesting sign of leadership. He says, this is now no longer my expertise. I am now going to hand over the house and the people to a set of trustees. Yeah. So that's a very, you know, very rare you see that in leaders. You'd, you'd feel them say, this is my baby. Anyway, so he's now ill. He's now exhausted. And he goes down to Helston, I think it is. Yeah. And he's recovering in Helston. He's saying, I just need to recover. I need to recover. Oh, that's interesting. Those buildings over there, they'd make a great home. And the next thing you know, he's got members of the Royal Navy and there's a large base down at uh, down in Helston called Cold Rose. And they're now coming over to build, refurbish this place for him. So now he has two homes. Again, at no point did he practice this. And I'm, I'm going to canter through a couple of these because I think they're so interesting. So in the meantime, he has now become quite a devout Catholic. And um, he is, he's having people say to him, if ever I can do something to help you, please let me know. Yeah. And all one day, so he wants to tell the story, the, the, the story of, um, of Jesus and sort of the religious story. So I think it's worth just making the point that he, he is born into a Church of England family. Yes. Um, and I think it's a debate at university or a conversation where he is on record as saying anyone who believes in God is anything more than a, uh, a turn of phrase to talk about, you know, human soul and the emotions is an idiot. You know, and it, I'm paraphrasing slightly, but he basically, you know, he is a, a very, very convinced atheist at university. But there are moments throughout his life where he talks about, in hindsight, the touches of 
the Catholic Church and the feelings that he had that have built over time. And, and there's a, I, I suppose, a, an assumption that he's witnessing the dropping of yes. the, the nuclear bomb on Nagasaki was an epiphany moment where you know, he realised the need for humanity and, and you know, finds his faith. That isn't the case. He is horrified by the entirety of the war. Um, and of course, his role in it and heavy bombing is a big part of even now the, the conversation around morality and, and the moral imperatives of the Second World War. And it's, you know, the last of the great monuments to the Second World War was to Bomber Command because for a very long time nationally, there was an, a sort of squeamishness around the fact that we were deliberately bombing civilians. Leonard Cheshire was very much part of that, and you've already alluded to the fact that he was scared but very much enjoyed the work. He, he, he talked about, there was an interview in 1972, and you can go see this on YouTube, where he said, I loathed the war. And again, how very yes. interesting that, that many people would talk about war in certain ways, mm. but to say... I loathed the war. And when he was asked about why he was sort of, for what a better word, such an enthusiastic participant, he said there was a sense of urgency. We yeah. knew we had to do this. So I think there's words like service come back yeah. and sacrifice and selflessness. So yeah. I, I have to tell the story about this, this bus because it just strikes me. And I'll be honest. So I read um, the biography and the biography, by the way, finishes... I think it's 1956. So actually beyond 1956, I know there was a lot more, yeah. but that's what I heard. The, the story is, so he decided he wanted to spread the word. Yeah. And he felt that because he was um, hospitalized with TB, and as you say, he spent actually quite a long time in hospital recovering from TB, he had to come up with a way to spread the word. And then one day he came across these two buses that he could buy. And so he bought these buses and inside the buses, he made, uh, for what, I don't know what the correct word is, a diorama, but there were figurines and he recorded stories, Catholic stories yeah. and, and preaching effectively. And then got two people to drive around the East End of London doing this. And there are stories where these buses were mobbed with people. They yeah. would drive up to the East End, they would stop, they would open the doors, they would invite people on and they would listen to this. And both unusual, but also in terms of this is a man who effectively, I don't want to say doesn't take no for an answer because it implies he, he sort of presses people to do things, but this is a man who, when he has a vision of what he wants to do, whether it's precision bombing, whether it's, you know, making a, winning a bet about getting to France, or whether it be, I want to communicate the word of God. I thought that was amazing. And as I was reading through this, I, what struck me was, and you're allowed, I, 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 I apologize, I'm going to use, probably use language I shouldn't do. He's crazy. He's, he's mad. There's definitely a sense of, um, yeah, eccentricity. Eccentricity, I think. But what was interesting was I, as I. Dogged determination. As I read through this, I made an assumption that I, I, I built this picture in my mind of, as you say, a, a, an eccentric. And then I watched a few of the videos where they interview him and 
you you couldn't be more wrong. He was uh, compelling. He was yeah. lucid. He was articulate. He was gentle. He was humble. And I think that the, sort of the last thing for me on this, and maybe this sort of allows us to talk a bit more from the leadership side, yeah. this was a man who got people to follow him. Yeah. This was a man who got people to give him money, give him time, give him support, get on airplanes with him, give him mosquitoes or P-51s. Yeah. Do things that, you know, were some of the raids, the, you know, the, they stretched the fuel so much so that uh, there's one raid where the mosquitoes are, um, they're only allowed- They to were flying to Munich. They're flying to Munich. They're only allowed on station for three minutes. And he stayed And for... they're going to land, assuming everything goes to plan. And to get there, they have to fly directly over all of the high flat areas. There's no room for deviation. They will land with 15 minutes spare fuel. This is like a 14 hour mission. They've got three minutes over the target. And they, this has never been done. Operations aren't run like this. And he walks into the room, tells everybody what the plan is. And they look at him as if he's crazy. And then they all go, right then, what do we need to do? And then they follow him into the aircraft and they do it. I seem to think he also flew longer over Munich. He waited for the bomber attack to go forward before he flew back. But let's let's move on. I know we don't actually have that much longer. So we, we've... This is an amazing story. And so we, this is the kind of thing that you would make into a film and people perhaps yeah. wouldn't believe because all the things Absolutely. you don't. But let's, let's, let's go back to what makes him. Well, let, should we finish, finish the story? Oh, yeah, yeah. Before we do? So he accidentally built this set of care homes. This grows and grows and grows. And he's going now to this day, Cheshire Homes. Um, and I remember the Ardman animated videos of, you know, the, the animals from my childhood bringing to life the the need for disabled people to have a voice to have access to be treated as part of society that is the legacy that that Leonard one of the legacies that Leonard Cheshire sort of left to us at the same time he found devout Catholicism so he started to run charity that creates pilgrimage pilgrimages to lords yes he has also recognized... Can, can I just, on the yeah. story, so at the very end of the book that I read, which as I said was in 1956, he says to the biographer, I'm going to find some aeroplanes because I want to fly people to Lourdes. Now, I don't think that's what the charity did, but it was wonderful yeah, that that's yeah. the end of the book that says, I don't know if he'll yeah, do yeah. this, but it'll be interesting to yeah. find out. The fact that he then went on to do that is yet another example. Yeah, he is setting up care homes for um, disabled people, primarily children uh, that are victims of TB, uh, leprosy, cholera in India. He meets Sue Ryder of the Sue Ryder Foundation. She becomes his second wife and his wife until his death in 1994, I think, whatever it was in the mid nineties. Um, she is an outstanding and amazing person in her own right, but as a couple, they then continue charity work all the way through into their, um, into their old age. Um, and he is driven, you said, like he, he left the war with this conviction that, you know, peace is not a state of not war pieces where you have humanity um so he is driven by creating 
the the opportunity for greater humanity. Um, and so a lot of his charity work in the latter stages, so 80s, 90s, was all about creating the foundations of bottom-up reconciliation. So finding those connections at the grassroots. And it's fascinating because I've literally just gone for a run this afternoon and was listening to um, Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart's leading podcast. And they were talking in, in that about how we are now slowly coming around to this idea that peace and reconciliation isn't people that fly into war zones with celebrity status or, you know, a, a CV of prominent senior political jobs that go and fix things. They are things that happen from the bottom up and we're only just starting to recognise this. This is something he did in the 1980s and started to do. So incredible charity work that has left a much last, much greater lasting legacy than, than his wartime exploits. But there are clear lines that run from the beginning of the war all the way through, even though the actual output, two very, very different things. And it's interesting that you said about um, in that interview in the 74, I think 72, it was, 72, yeah. where he says, you know, I loathe the war. I don't, I don't not believe him. I absolutely believe that that's what he felt in 1972. I suspect that was a journey he had to go on because at the beginning of the war, there are lots of letters and he talks about urgency, but he also talks about the excitement, the talks about man, yeah. the need, you know, this, this war has to happen. Not because, you know, we've already said he's not that interested in countering Nazism in 1939. He doesn't know that much about it. He's not interested. But because he needs to do something that he could be good at, that he can uh, excel at, and that he can make a name for himself. So I think there's a real juxtaposition between... 20-year-old Leonard Cheshire, um, or 22-year-old Leonard Cheshire, and... 27-year-old Leonard Cheshire. 27-year-old, and then 60-year-old yeah, yeah, yeah. Leonard Cheshire. The, there was something that struck He's me gone as... gone on a journey. There was something that struck me as I was reading this, which is, it feels like, and maybe this is just lack of knowledge, but it feels like many people are inaccessible. It's very mm. difficult to know why they did a thing. You know, yeah. If someone does something heroic, were they terrified? Were they enjoying themselves? Did they do it for, for, you know, for celebrity or did they do it for humility? One of the things that's interesting about Cheshire is I think there is enough reasonably obvious evidence to give you a picture of the man. So, yes. you know, we've made some quite clear assertions about his motivations and his thinking. And I think a lot of the time it's because we heard it directly from him yeah. and we heard other people repeating that as well. So maybe, maybe as we sort of come towards the end of this, do you want to pick out a few of the things that you that stuck, struck struck you as, you know, the, this podcast is all about trying to better understand how to be better yeah. leaders, managers, businesses. What what was it that struck you about Cheshire? So there are there are various inconsistencies or juxtapositions if you try to look at you know. Cheshire the peacemaker, Cheshire the you know, precision bomber, Cheshire the cad at university. But there are threads that run through all of his life that I think 
mean that he is inevitably going to be successful at whatever he does. And there are three things that stick out for me. One is, and we've kind of already talked about this, a, a tenacity or a, a devotion to whatever it is he puts his mind to is it, that, that he's verging on eccentricity. Well, is it, and, and I, I agree with you, I think you could play around with that. I got the feeling sometimes it was naivety as well. And, and not, not in a bad way, but in a, well, well, what else would I do? I, I, I and this, but this is what I would do. So there's You could be naive and still, you know, not stay fair. up till two in the morning. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, fair. Reading the but, manual but I didn't get the sense that he, he fretted about that. No, he I, definitely doesn't. So it, it was an innate sense talked, of this is what yeah. I do. He talks about the fear um, and um, the fear of going into heavy flak, going into you know contested airspace, getting shot down, as any aircrew going into these conditions for the first time would. Very similar to many military people, you're you're having to compartmentalise the job. The, the fear of your own personal safety and risk. And, and then this third and possibly more overwhelming anxiety that you're gonna let the team down. And he talks about fear on his first raid or his first couple of raids, where he's really, really scared that he's going to come into machine gun fire, you know, ACAC fire, and he's not going to be able to carry on doing the job. And he's going to be left, you know, in charge of an aircraft or, or you know, number two in the aircraft and, and be useless to the rest of the crew. He's not, he's, what he's worried about is that his fear is going to prevent him doing the job. For the rest of the war, he talks quite explicitly about the fact that he never really thought about or dwelled upon what could happen. He, when there is a dangerous situation, he accepts it and then ignores it and carries on because he, he, he says several times, actually, in, in many of the, the things that he's written down, um, that you know, dwelling on the what could happen beyond the reasonable mitigations mm. you can make to risk, risk mitigate, risk manage, everything else is just worry for the sake of worry. And so, you know, you can't decide whether you're going to avoid flak or not. It is luck. Therefore, don't worry about it. Yeah. Um, and he talks about the fact that he was incredibly lucky and he counts himself as incredibly lucky. And I think we started talking about doing the influencers and we talked about survivor bias. And I, I think it is worth recognising that he was one of the lucky ones. Yeah, and, I mean, and despite everything the, we've the said odds about, of him surviving 100 missions were yeah, very low. Everything we've said about his skill, his tenacity, his traits, you know, there is also, he was one of the survivors and but, one of the few survivors but, to go from 1939 to 1945. Maybe, maybe that's one of the points which is great leaders, to your point, don't worry about things. They take a, the, yeah. the greatest advantage of what I can. I, I want to I wanna talk about the thing that really stands out to me. If you said to me, pick one thing, and and there are so many things, the bravery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the, so you I've, know, I've got three, that was one. Well, so I'll, what's I'll, your next one? My one is, is about this sense of selfless leadership. And, yeah. and, and, and that's 
that's kind of the wrong word. The bit I want to focus on is throughout his life, people who did not need to follow him did followed him yeah. and not just followed him, but personally sacrificed. Now, whether that was, you know, in the military world, that's a little bit more of a dramatic thing, but the example where a chap said, thank you for looking after my child or my father or mother, what can I do for you? Well, would you drive a bus to the East End for me? And that guy then drove a bus to the East End. Yeah. That they, it, it's almost hypnotic, this effect that he has on people. And um, I think that's interesting. You have a hypnotic effect and there are people in the world that have had that who are doing this in a bad way. I don't know that, I didn't get the sense that he was doing it to achieve that. No. So I got the sense this. it was an outcome because of yeah. who he was. He was humble. He was passionate. Yeah. He had a goal. He had a mission. He could convince people. He could communicate to people. It's, it's interesting because we are, we're back to talking about cults. And we talked about this with Steve Jobs. And, and whether he is leading people through inspiration or leading people through manipulation. And I genuinely think either... He is a very, very good manipulator because he's manipulated you and I. Or this was pure inspiration. I, and I'm, I'd like to think we're not that bad. I think it's inspiration. I and again, I, I've, said it, I've said it multiple times and I promised the last bit. Go read the books about him and, and go watch 30 seconds on yeah. YouTube because my, is this guy crazy? You watch him on YouTube and you go, this isn't a crazy person. No. And he might have ideas that are unusual or surprising or unlikely, but oh wow, you you can watch this and you can go, I could see why people followed this guy. Yeah. So for me, there are like the tenacity and the the sort of focus on yeah. achieving things is, is clearly one. There are two others, which the the building of the followership, I think folds neatly into the second one which is you know, he is devoted compassionate and and humble to everybody that he meets especially those that he is responsible for in command and there are lots and lots of examples of him um so you know going right back to his university days where i said you know he would talk to the staff and people were like well that's that's very odd you know maybe he's a rebel rouser you know but actually this is a guy who wants to know who the people around him are oh. he wants to build relationships he wants to know the name of you know jack who's an engineer's children he wants to know what gets jack out of bed in the morning not because he's nosy not because he's kicking off some management book but because he is a person that he's genuinely compassionate and driven by relationship i think and i think there's a word in there which i think is just as important which is genuine genuine because i yeah. think there are people who i'm going to remember their name because you know that will get me yeah I don't think that's his nature because I think what you're saying is is there, but also he couldn't do that over that many years. There well, there's no way. There are there are two examples that I I want to bring out that I think prove beyond reasonable doubt that that this compassion is not about self interest. And one is um, he needs to bomb uh, a aero engineer factory in Limoges, France. Um, and this is part of the demonstration of capability to uh, Bomber Harris that's going to get him given these mosquitoes. Um, and they're told that they've got to bomb this 
uh, this factory to prove that they can do it. But this factory is in the middle of Limoges. It's a civilian area and possibly deliberately, um, possibly as just part of the constraints of bomber command at the time, he's also told that there is zero tolerance for civilian casualties, <clears throat> which makes this raid, you know, you are either going to bomb that if you miss, you're going to kill people, you can't do that. So, but the factory itself is a legitimate target. But Leonard Cheshire realises that the 500 or so people that work in this factory, apart from probably some of the senior management, and there's probably some German guards and stuff, but most of them are French civilians who are pressed into working in a German factory. And so these are legitimate targets. These wouldn't have been counted as part of the civilian collateral. Um, and so legitimately, as far as the RAF are concerned, he could have just flown in, bombed the factory. He realised that these are civilians, and so he deliberately flew in at 20 feet above the factory and did four circuits around the factory at 20 feet in order to give everybody in the factory a fighting chance of getting out. And every single person did. One lady went back to get her bike and she unfortunately was killed, but, but everybody else in the factory got out. That was a, a sense of compassion that, that he risked his own personal safety and that of his crew in order to do it because it was the right thing. I think there's another example, which is he was told, um, ordered very specifically on one raid that they need to go in at 2,000 feet. And he said, it's insanity. The, that is the riskiest window of you know, where the flak is. I'm not doing it. And he refused the order. Um, and he said, I'm absolutely going to do this raid. This is not about you know, not having the stomach for it. We either go in at 20,000 feet where it's safe, or we go in at 200 feet below the radars. And they ended up going in at 200 feet um, because he recognised and he recognised the mistake and he stood up for what he believed was right in the face of an order. And obviously in the military during wartime, refusing orders is quite a, yeah, it's not something you do lightly, but he showed a genuine compassion for his air crew, for the safety of the crew, and for the his belief in the outcome of the mission. So courage is another big thing. I mean, we I think yeah. courage has been implied. Yes. But actually, it's worth calling that out. And I think the third thing for me is he combines that natural leadership, builds relationships. People follow him because he's got a bit of flair. He builds, you know, relationships. People trust him. Um, he's doggedly going after the end goal, um, and so people are going to follow him. But he backs it up with technical knowledge. He becomes whatever it is he's going to do. It's very well said. An when expert, and where he's not an expert, he learns. He learns and, and, and relies on people who we, are. We gave him the military example, but the example of the first people in his care home where he started saying. How do I care for people? Yeah. Well, look, we've 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 sort of, I suspect we've more scratched the surface with Leonard Cheshire, but actually it was a really interesting example for us to learn about. I hope it was interesting for people listening. The, the last thing maybe from me is 
leaders aren't these cartoon archetypes that we often describe and we have in our heads when we think about great leaders. They come in all shapes and sizes. And perhaps for me, it's, it's sort of those genuine values and uh, goals they have that really make them the person. And Leonard Cheshire is someone who deserves a lot more time and to be remembered more. I don't know if you've got any last, last thoughts. It's, for me, if, if there's something you can take away, it's, you know, you can't underestimate the value of building those relationships, not just with, you know, the people above you, not just with the, the air crew that you're flying with, but, but with, you know, the person that makes the tea in the mess, the, the person who cuts the grass on the airstrips, he talked to everybody. And what that meant was people would follow him We've talked about that. But what it also meant was when he needed somebody to do something, he knew where to turn. And we've talked before, sort of in the in the abstract, about you can't build relationships build, in the crisis. Build your networks before. Yeah. Compassion, tenacity, technical skill, and just take the time to know the people that you're working with. And I think he was lucky because I don't think he did it because he listened to a podcast that said build the networks. I think that was just inherently who it was, which amplifies that. Yeah, I think there is definitely that. There are also, and and you know, we're heinously guilty of this now. There are quite a few mentors in his early flying career, which he absolutely, um, you know, he personally thinks he owes a lot of that. Um, and I can't remember their names, which is terrible. Um, and I will definitely on the next one make sure we we give Call a nod, people give out. a nod to them um, but yeah compassion tenacity technical skill where it's needed without getting into the weeds of other people's work um, and building relationships so That's leonard cheshire we we hope you've enjoyed this one um, as always uh, we're on battling with biz with a z uh, twitter if it still exists <laughs> i'm sure at some point we should be cool and go to threads but i haven't worked that one out yet uh, we're on an email which is always there battling with business at gmail.com and i'm hoping that this has been interesting for all of you if you've got someone that we should be looking at as an influencer or you've got any ideas or questions for our content hopefully you've heard we've had various guests that have been listeners we've had ideas from listeners so please do contribute. It actually is uh, really exciting for us to hear from other people and to broaden this conversation. Likewise, if you've got friends who you think would find this interesting, please let them know. Uh, every week, those downloads keep coming. And part of that is because you keep sharing with your friends and family. And I keep meeting people who say, avid listener to your podcast or they throw out casual phrases from a podcast wonderful uh so uh, long may go so uh i think that's all from me today yeah as a teaser for the next influences we're going to have another air force officer but we're going to have an american uh slightly more recent we're going to have colonel john boyd so we're not going to tell you anything more about colonel john boyd so you wait and you'll learn a bit more, but another fascinating character to learn more about. Yeah, in a very different way. And it should be hopefully, although another air, airman, a very different story and a very different set of lessons, hopefully. Perfect. All right. Cool. Well, thank you very much. And we'll see you next time. Cheerio. Sure, yeah.